0: back to the Equipping You in Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this podcast. And with me today is Jason DeRoshi. Jason, how are you doing today? Doing very well, thanks. Welcome to the Equipping You in Grace podcast, sir. Thanks. It's a delight to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. Jason, can you please tell us a little bit about your life, marriage, ministry, and some of your upcoming ministry projects, please? Sure.
1: I am a husband of one wife, 23 years of marriage to Teresa, and God's given us six kids, the younger three all coming from Ethiopia. I am an elder of Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and professor of Old Testament and biblical theology at our church's school, Bethlehem College and Seminary. I have a handful of different projects I've been working on. The biggest one is a Large commentary on the book of Zephaniah, which I believe is perhaps the most hedonistic book of all the Old Testament, calling for amazing joy, setting joy out, joy in God and God's joy in his people as the defining, motivating characteristic pushes people to continue to seek him and wait for him. So the book of Zephaniah, it's in the Zondervan exegetical commentary on the Old Testament series, and I'm trying to wrap
0: that up this year. Wow, that sounds really awesome. I'm looking forward to that. Would you please tell us a little bit about your book, How to Understand and Apply the Old Testament, 12 Steps from Exegesis to Theology, Why You Wrote It, and How You Hope It's Received?
1: This book is really a culmination of my initial decade plus of academic ministry. I started out in Christian college equipping students from football players, kinesiology majors, computer science majors, equipping them to live for Jesus in every vocation. And then in 2009, God moved me to be a seminary professor, and I've been equipping elders who will serve as missionaries and in churches as pastors and as Bible translators to handle God's Word. And this book is really a culmination of my ministry, pastoral and professorial, bringing together key principles of how to understand and how to apply God's Word. I'm wanting to see people observe carefully, understand rightly, evaluate fairly, all in the context of study. And then I want them to practice first by feeling appropriately in accordance with the truths that they've grasped, and then work it out, begin to act and do truthfully with integrity for the glory of God in their lives. And then after studying and practicing my my desire is that they would express teach whether in writing speaking to be able to get out the truth that they have Discovered in the Word, and, and this relates to whether you're a Bible teacher, a elementary Sunday school teacher, or just a a layman that that longs to know and love God and live for Him more effectively. This book is trying to capture and package a process, and, and because uh, it's packaged in the way that I have, it's a little bit artificial. In that, whenever you study the Bible, you don't start with only the text. And then move to observation and then ask context questions and then establish the meaning and then only then move to application. It's, it's less a, a cycle and more of a spiral where you, you're climbing and, and repeating and re-asking similar questions and continuing to grow deeper in and higher up. But this book lays out 12 basic steps under five basic categories that help a person move from exegesis which is the process of understanding what an author, what the author's intended in scripture, and moving to theology, this step of standing in awe of God and his message, moving through that process. So I've got five basic steps, text, observation, context, meaning, application. Under text, we're asking, what is the makeup of this passage? And I've got four chapters on genre, on literary units and Text hierarchy, just trying to determine the limits and basic structure of the passage. Text criticism, which is the process of understanding the passage's original wording. And then translation, just an overview of why we have different translations and the value of using different translations in our Bible study. After text, we move to observation, which is asking how is the passage communicated? And here we start with that scary word grammar, clause and text grammar. And then we move to just tracing the argument. We want to understand the flow of thought and how the whole passage fits together and points to one main idea. And then we do some word and concept studies. That's chapter 7. In part 3, context, we're saying, where does the passage fit? And here we're looking at historical context and literary context. And then we move to part 4, and this is where we really transition out of exegesis into theology. It's meaning. What does the passage mean? So we look at biblical theology, systematic theology, and then finally under application, part five, why does the passage matter? We, we unpack practical theology. And what makes this so significant is that I'm really trying to approach the initial three-fourths of the Bible as Christian scripture. Even though it's such an ancient book and covers covenants that we're no longer a part of, it's still in our Bible as Christians, and so my book, "How to Understand and Apply the Old Testament," is an attempt to help Christians appropriate the initial three fourths of the Bible
0: in a way that will move them to treasure Jesus in increasing ways. Oh, that's really good, and I loved the book. I thought it was excellent, along with Dr. Andy Naselli's book. Just, a, just a great, you know, overview, instruction, help practical help to reading and interpreting scripture. And even though I, I spent seminary studying this topic, I, I still found myself learning. So I think anybody, wherever they are, can learn from both books. So And one of the elements that's distinctive about mine is
1: that I really tried to write it for numerous audiences. So I actually have what I call trail guides through the book, and I use icons to display whether a certain section is for beginning travelers, moderate hiking level, or advanced hikers. And the beginning level sections are for everyone and they include no Hebrew. The intermediate or moderate level sections are also for everyone and yet they include some Hebrew. Even if you don't know Hebrew, I've tried to write it in a way that will help people see the benefit of the original languages. And I only use it there where I think it will serve the person who who doesn't have a grasp of the languages, but who's hungering and wanting to know more. And then the advanced level is only for my Hebrew students and those who've had some time learning the original language. Uh, but I took an entire year after the book was written to try to make sure... That one could start on any of those three tracks and read straight through the book and benefit, hmm. and so I, I hope I hope that I've been effective that way and and I had numerous people in my Sunday school class and beyond who read at various levels in the book in preparation before publication. The testimony I 'm getting is that I was effective at with god's help in reaching those three different levels of reader.
0: I would agree with that assessment. good job. And I love the fact that you both sought that kind of feedback that I think that's very wise and mature and helpful, especially because you want this book, want books that you write to actually help people and to grow. And so I think uh, uh, pursuing that kind of feedback is really helpful, even for other people who are writing books. So,
1: well, I've got. I've got both my wife, who's never been seminary trained, and most of the people in my Sunday school class at Bethlehem Baptist Church that I've been teaching now, I'm in my 12th year. I just love them, and I want them to get fired up about God's Word and not everyone is called to learn Hebrew. We need men and women in every generation who can do that, to stand as guardians of God's word in that way. But most of the world is not called to do that kind of study. And and I want them to be able to read God's word. and And by God's grace, he's given us good translations, and we can use those to encounter him. So thank you. Amen.
0: Why is the Old Testament so important for Christians today?
1: Oh man. As I go deeper in, I just feel this is, this is such a key question. It's God's word. I mean, why is it important for Christians? Because God's talked to us and the initial three-fourths of the Bible, the Old Testament, and I have no problem calling it that, it is it is old, meaning that it's been superseded by new if we're talking about the covenants, uh, but this is Christian Scripture and it's three-fourths of our Christian Bible. So if, if God's spoken to us and we want to know our God, man, let's, let's look at all that he's given us. Not only that, this was Jesus' only Bible. Hmm. Jesus didn't have Romans yet. He didn't read Matthew. He never struggled with the visions in the book of Revelation. Jesus didn't have any of that. Mm -hmm. Jesus' Bible was the law, the prophets, and the writings moving from Genesis to Malachi. That was Jesus' Bible. And he said that it was about him. So I'm a Christian. I want to know Jesus. And Jesus says, the initial three-fourths of the Bible, he's finding himself everywhere. The Apostle Peter says in Acts chapter 3 that all the prophets from Moses, Samuel, and beyond spoke of the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. I want to meet that Jesus. And they say that I can meet him in the Old Testament. I... Jesus said, the law, the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms spoke of me. The scriptures declare that the Christ would suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed throughout the world. That the Christ would suffer, that, that this Messiah focus is what Jesus says the Old Testament about? is about. But not only that, that the Old Testament declares that repentance and forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed throughout the world. That's about missions. So we've got the Messiah and the missions as the lens through which we can approach the Old Testament. That the Old Testament is pointing ahead to a day when gospel hope would enter into a sinful world. And that word gospel, the gospel of the kingdom that Jesus talks about throughout Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that gospel, that word is first used in the book of Isaiah, focused on the day when the Messiah would come and the kingdom of God would intrude and evil would be destroyed and the poor would receive mercy and the captive would be set free all through the spirit-empowered king. I want to get to know him more, and we find that in the Old Testament. The New Testament authors stress that the Old Testament was written for our instruction. Paul said to Timothy, who was raised by a Jewish mother and a Jewish grandmother, you were raised up on the sacred writings, that's the Old Testament, that are able to make you wise unto salvation through Jesus Christ. There are people who visit on a Sunday morning our churches who are able to be made wise unto salvation through Jesus Christ through Old Testament sermons if preachers would only preach them. And Paul, in the very next breath, says all Scripture And remember, at that point, predominantly, he's talking about the Old Testament. He's written his letters. The Gospels are beginning to be produced. But he's just mentioned the sacred writings that Timothy was raised up on. That's the all scripture, and he was raised up by a Jewish mother and a Jewish grandmother in Second Timothy three, fifteen and sixteen. He says all scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. So he's convinced, Paul's convinced that his Bible, the Old Testament, is loaded with things that Christians need to hear, that are able to make them wise unto salvation and from which we can teach and rebuke and correct, that Christians can actually be corrected from the Old Testament. And part of the purpose of my book is to try to help Christians understand how do we do that faithfully without trying to maintain that the Old Covenant still continues? Because it doesn't. We're not under the Old. It's been superseded by the New. The Guardian that once oversaw the Jews is no more. We've moved into a different period of history now that Jesus has come. The New Covenant is our guide. And yet, all that Old Covenant still matters to us. And all of the Old Testament is Christian scripture. So a little bit of a flavor for why it is that I think Christians need to read and understand and apply, yet faithfully and only through Jesus, the initial three-fourths of our
0: Bibles. You know, I love that answer. And the more I, the older I get, I... I just love spending more time in the in the Old Testament, not, and that's not to neglect the New Testament either. But I mean, I spend most of my year just studying the, or reading the the Old Testament, listening to it but on my on the U version app, and I just, especially like the Psalms, Proverbs, some of the other books of the Bible. Man, you just got to get into them. You got to read them and, and really understand. I mean, you can't understand the Book of Hebrews, for example, without having a good knowledge of you know the old testament that that is
1: so right that is so right yeah you you won't understand what priesthood is what the temple is what sacrifice was about where do we go to find the clearest understanding of creation where do we go to find but but genesis 1 uh 1 and 2 where do we go to find the most clear statement of god's incomparability but isaiah 40 where would we go to find Really, the Bible's most extended depiction of Jesus' passion, his suffering, and the purpose of that suffering, but Isaiah 53. We, we just need the Old Testament as believers to actually understand what the gospel is. If we don't understand the problem that the Old Testament lays out, we won't really celebrate the solution that the New Testament supplies as much. If we don't understand the foundation, we will not grasp the significance of the fulfillment and all that we have in Jesus.
0: Yeah, that's a really good answer. What are some of the guiding principles that guide your approach to biblical interpretation?
1: Well, in my book, I I, I lay out from the beginning, I just see it as as important to let the reader see where I'm coming from. And, and there's really four of them that I, I can think of right off the bat. One is that I, as a biblical interpreter, approach Scripture convinced that this is God's Word. It's not like any other book. And I think that is a necessary presupposition to actually arrive at understanding where the biblical authors are coming from. The biblical authors were writing from a perspective that God had spoken to them and that they were proclaiming God's words to a needy people. And if I approach the scripture not believing that God had spoken, it's actually going to be impossible for me to arrive at a proper understanding, a proper grasp of what these authors intended. So scripture is God's word. Number two, truth is knowable. Peter said, reflecting on Paul's writings, there are many things in Paul's words that, that are just difficult to understand. That's true. But then he goes on to say that the ignorant and the unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So one, Peter was believing that Paul's words in Galatians and Thessalonians, Romans, that these were scriptures. And then he was believing that they were actually knowable. Even though they're hard to understand, it's the unstable and the ignorant who twist God's word to say things that it doesn't actually say. What that means is that, is that we can know God's word, but it's not going to come easily often we have to wrestle deeply, like Paul said to Timothy, think over what I have told you. Think, and God will give you understanding in all of it. Truth is knowable. That's one of the presuppositions that I approach scripture believing that God can let me understand what he's written, and that he can move that understanding into application. Number three would be that biblical interpretation really requires that we respond rightly. Part of the intent of the biblical authors is not simply that we would understand something cognitively, but that we would understand something with our heart, that it would change us, that scripture always is to have an effect. God reveals himself in order to bring judgment or to bring life. And the intended effect of scripture is going to carry itself out in, in people's lives when we proclaim it. And I want to see life happen when people read the book. And, and so I approach it. Believing that God wants me to actually encounter Him, that, that the Jesus that the scripture is proclaiming is a Jesus to be treasured, a Jesus who can satisfy the deepest longings of my soul, that can carry me through the deepest levels of suffering. I've got to believe that. And I enter in longing to know this God, to savor this Christ, to, to treasure and to to have my mind blown and my heart satisfied because life is really hard. Suffering is real. The curse is is an actual reality, and this is a broken world. And Scripture was given, and it's often very raw. We see the emotions, the laments, the complaints of the biblical authors, and they're talking my language. They know My world and God wants that that scripture to change me so that as I enter in like a scientist looking through a magnifying glass at the word, trying to understand its details, that ultimately the goal is that I would become find myself. Not looking through the glass, but actually underneath the lens with God's word changing me and assessing my heart. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any hurtful way in me. So seeing the word, approaching the word, I approach it believing that proper biblical interpretation requires that we respond appropriately. And then the last point is simply God dependence. I don't think we're going to arrive at a proper grasp of scripture if we don't uh, approach the word with humility. And so I want to approach prayerful. The word was written by the spirit and it's spiritually, spiritual people who properly grasp God's book. Paul says the natural person doesn't accept the things of the spirit of God for they're folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. First Corinthians 2.14. I think that a non-believer can look at words on a page and grasp them, grasp their meaning at one level, but they will not grasp the appropriate effect It won't change them. And for there to be change in our lives, we need to approach the book dependently on our God. So believing that this is God's word, inerrant, infallible, believing that Scripture is knowable, that I can actually know this God who's talking to me, believing that I'm supposed to respond appropriately and praying that God would make it happen, and approaching Scripture with a God dependence. Those are really the guiding principles. I I don't even know if that's what you were looking for, but those are at least presuppositions that, before I even open the text, are guiding my mind and my heart. At least that's what I want them to be. For my students, I tell them, my hope is that I am the lead worshiper in the classroom, because this is about meeting our God. All of scripture is about knowing him. It's not about head knowledge. It's about life transformation. That is, A transformation that is related to Christ exaltation in my own life, in my being, in my words, in my reactions. That's what I'm wanting to see through this book.
0: Yeah, that's brilliant great why is asking the question what is the makeup of the biblical passage so important okay
1: this is this is part 1 of the book what is the makeup of the passage we're we're talking about the text here the makeup of the passage is the first major question that we have to ask because we need to know do i have the what is the text in front of me we're asking for example what form is it what's the subject matter what's the function of the passage this is this is what is its makeup? Uh, how is it coming to me? Is it a genealogy? Is it a parable? If I approach a parable thinking that I'm actually reading a true historical narrative, I'm not going to arrive at the author's intent. When the prophet came to David and gives him a parable, Nathan, and gives David a parable after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba and gives him the parable about the sheep, David thought that he was listening to a historical narrative. And all of a sudden, when Nathan says, you are the man. David recognized that this moved from historical account of someone other than himself to a parable about himself. We gotta grasp the genre. We also just need to know the boundaries of the passage. When we're asking what is the makeup of the passage, we're asking, okay, we, we want to discern where the beginning of the unit is and where the end of the unit is, and then within that unit, how everything hangs together. Um, many of our English Bibles have footnotes in the margin. They send us into that margin and often Often it will say some of the earliest manuscripts don't include this material or it'll say this reading is following the Greek Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, whereas the Hebrew text actually says this or or we're following the Dead Sea Scrolls rather than the Leningrad Codex, which is the single manuscript from which our Old Testaments are translated. What's going on there is that our scholars are doing what's called text criticism. And when I say, what's the makeup of the passage, it's responsible for every biblical interpreter to make sure that the text before us is the actual word of God and not a scribal alteration. Before the printing press, scribes were copying and scribes were human and scribes could make mistakes. But by God's mercy, we're able to evaluate today, compare different readings, and evaluate the age and quality of manuscripts. We're able to look at the context and really establish in a a very solid way the most original reading that God gave us, that, that Isaiah would have actually written, that Moses would have actually written. And so our English translators have, for the most part, in most of our English Bibles, have done that work for us, giving us what they believe is indeed the most original Word of God. And so we can celebrate that today. But that's text criticism. It's still the case that sometimes certain English translations will differ on what they think was the most original reading. And so for we as biblical interpreters, it's good for us to, even if we don't know any Hebrew to be aware of what's going on in our margins and compare various translations. And then the last issue is that translation question. And anybody who's used the NIV up against the ESV next to the new American standard will at times see differences in wording. And sometimes not too often, but sometimes those differences are substantial. And so I say, First step in biblical interpretation is to grasp the text, which means what is the makeup of the passage? And so we're asking questions as, uh, questions of genre, of literary units, of text criticism and translation.
0: Yeah, that's good. Um, how do we observe how the biblical passage is communicated?
1: How do we observe we pause. So many of us are accustomed to reading for distance rather than depth. And the only way we can make good observations to understand how a passage is communicated is by slowing down. Sometimes that requires going into that realm that many people don't like to remember called grammar. And so we've got clause grammar and we've got text grammar. In clause grammar, you've got various parts of speech like a subject and its predicate you've got what is doing an action and then the action itself but then you've also got various modifiers prepositions and conjunctions that that are included into various clauses and and the observer will pause long enough to actually see what is there and ask why is it there why did the passage why did the author communicate his words this way What that means is if we see a for or because, we ask, okay, because this is true, something else matters. Or if we see a therefore, we ask what it's there for. So tracking these small words in order to not only understand the structure of various clauses, but actually looking at an entire paragraph and trying to understand how it all hangs together Looking at these key words and I and then then just doing things that we call word studies. That can be very helpful too. All of this is part two of my book, Chapters 5, 6, and 7: Clause and Text Grammar, Argument Tracing, and Word and Concept Studies. And I try to guide both the person who doesn't know any Hebrew, where would they start? And then I also guide those who are able to use some Hebrew or who know Hebrew well um I'm guiding at all levels with respect to clause and text grammar argument tracing and word and concept studies but but ultimately in answer to your question how do we observe we observe by slowing down and asking the questions of the text what is that word mean? What is he actually trying to communicate? Why does he put because there? Why does he put so that here? And then feeling the weight of why it
0: all matters. That's really good. Uh, what process should we utilize to discover the context of the biblical passage?
1: Well, context is at the base, most basic level, two different sides. We're looking at its context in space and time, that is in history. When was the passage written? Why was it written? Uh, the, the who, what, when, why, where, how, how often, those kinds of questions, that's historical context. And then the literary questions relate to where does our passage fit within the book? And if we were to take our passage out of the book, what would be lost? If you can answer that question, you're beginning to understand what your passage actually contributes to the book as a whole, to the message that God is trying to get across. Even in a story, the stories are sermons in story form. God's wanting us to encounter him. He's wanting to motivate deeper levels of faith, or a greater understanding, awareness of who he is. So digging in to understand the historical situation from which an author composed this text, and then to identify any historical details that the author either mentions or assumes. And this assumption area is a challenge for readers, because here's where we just recognize that this Old Testament was written in a very different time to a different people, there were different powers in play, and there were also a lot of different perspectives at work. So with respect, so, so getting in and pausing long enough to ask the, the contextual questions like, this author is assuming that I know his language. His communication is assuming if he's speaking in Hebrew or in Aramaic, he's assuming that his reader is either going to understand Hebrew or Aramaic or at least have a translation that's working for them. But there's other details like, like the worldview that he has, societal and economic systems, normal behavior patterns that might be unfamiliar to us. Political climate, religious practices, physical geographical features. And in my book, I go through a number of these, just giving examples of how historical context can actually impact our reading of the biblical text. The reality is most of our historical context comes from our understanding of the Bible itself. Most of our understanding of the biblical world comes from the Bible itself. So the better readers we can be of all of Scripture, the better we'll read, be the better readers will be of specific scriptures because we have an entire world of text that's able to bring us in and give us a lens for understanding more. So historical context, literary context. That's, That's really good.
0: How does a growing understanding of biblical theology help Christians to study how the whole Bible progresses, integrates, and climaxes in Christ?
1: Well, biblical theology—that is a a loaded term. People don't use it too often at McDonald's. So <laughs> let me just let me just unpack it for you. You really captured it, even in the way that you framed the question. I think at the most basic level, biblical theology is is grasping how the whole Bible progresses, integrates, and climaxes in Jesus. How does it hold together and how does it point to Christ? Christ is at the center of history. I like to call Jesus the fulcrum upon which everything else turns. Everything points to Jesus and all fulfillment comes from Jesus. And so he's at the center of this wheel called the kingdom of God, the spokes break up into two halves, an old covenant and a new covenant. At the center is Jesus. All the spokes are pointing to him. All of the fulfillment is coming from him. The Old Testament is foundation. The New Testament is fulfillment. All of the Bible is held together by this beautiful storyline. The Bible is not only story. It includes a lot of other elements, a lot of other other genres and units, but, but at the core is a story. One of the things that I've used in my own teaching is just an unpacking of this story. If people can grasp, where all the key players and all the key events that they can think of in, in the Bible, where they actually fit on the flow of God's purposes, climaxing in Jesus, it'll help them understand what Jesus came to do, the problems he came to fix, the glories that he claimed to display. So in my book, I'm trying to help people understand the story and the place of the story, identifying the benefit of tracing biblical themes from Genesis to Revelation, from creation to consummation. It's one of the things that I do in, in a class called Biblical Theology at my campus. Dr. Naselli and I teach it side by side. And, and we've chosen to set up this biblical theology class by tracing, okay, how is the Christian to think about law, law from the beginning? beginning to the end, or missions? How does missions get transformed? How does the kingdom of God develop? Uh, how do the various covenants relate? How does the temple progress from a, a temple presence God tabernacling in the Garden of Eden and moving to a localized temple with Moses and Israel in the Promised Land, and then that temple being destroyed, and they building a, a second temple. But then Jesus coming is the ultimate temple, and the church is the temple. And then the day when all All that will be left is the holy of holies so that there is no temple. There's no distinction between the holy and the common. And seeing that progression through Scripture helps people understand God's purposes. And biblical theology is is really about unpacking God's purposes from beginning to end as they're organically relayed in Scripture. As organic meaning like, like a seed blossoming into a fruit tree. An orange seed moving up to an orange tree. An apple seed blossoming into an apple tree many people approach the old testament as if it's a an acorn that turns into an apple tree in the new testament as if there isn't coherence as if there isn't connectiveness and and i think there's actually organic connectivity so that the old testament is like an acorn that blossoms into a giant mighty oak the new testament actually supplies us clarity like an answer key, or if you were reading a mystery novel, it would be like the last chapter. And all of a sudden you arrive at the end of that chapter all these lights go off and and you're compelled to move back in and and read the story again and everything was always there. What the New Testament does is it's like it, it enters into a room and turns the lights on and the furniture was all there but all you could do was feel it in the dark and the New Testament gives greater revelation, greater understanding. My book is calling for Christians to read all of scripture in light of Christ. Biblical theology from that framework truly helps us understand understand who jesus is why he came and who we're supposed
0: to be yeah that's that's a great answer how should christians begin to discern how the biblical passage theologically coheres with the whole bible and then assess essential doctrines especially as they have a direct relation to the gospel well i think what you're i think your question
1: there relates to systematic theology mm-hmm. and So this question of the major doctrines in in Scripture, things like our doctrine of God, our doctrine of salvation, our doctrine of the church, how does our interpretation of Scripture help us assess those doctrines? And I I think at the most basic level, what I have my students do and and how I lay it out in the book is we enter into a passage recognizing that the passage doesn't give us information on every teaching in Scripture, but it may speak to some of the major doctrines. One of the things that I ask my students to do is if you were to to tell people about who God is, would this be a passage that you would go to? If you wanted to give clarity about the nature of the work of demons— Does this passage speak toward that doctrine? And I think as interpreters, it's very, very helpful for us to pause and ask that kind of a question because our minds work in categories and often we're asked, well, what does the Bible talk about baptism? How should we be thinking about anger? And our passage may or may not speak to it. And pastors or Sunday school teachers have a great opportunity week after week as they're walking through the biblical text to not simply pause and make much of Jesus specifically and show how this passage fits within the grand flow of salvation history, but also to pause and help build categories for people and identify do you see what? this passage tells us about salvation. This is teaching that we are sinners in desperate need of a Savior. And where does that Savior come? His name is Jesus. Or this passage is specifically calling the Old Testament Israelites to love God with all their heart. But elsewhere in Scripture, later in the book of Deuteronomy, we find out that God didn't give them a heart to know him. So how do we fit that into our doctrine of God's sovereignty? The the Scripture is always raising doctrinal questions. It's Doctrine that shapes the bedrock of what we believe. Indeed, even for me to give you four different guiding principles up front of how I move into biblical interpretation, what I'm giving you is, is principles of doctrine that are shaping how I approach God's word. So it's very important for us to get our doctrine right. And I will add that at any moment, our doctrine could be corrected by scripture itself. And so we want to be a people who are always letting our own theology be reshaped by scripture and not ignoring tough texts because we don't know how to fit them into our scheme. We want schemes, systems that are surrendered and servants to the Bible itself, which means once again we all have to be as biblical interpreters, we can never be proud, God opposes the proud, but he has strength to the humble, and we need to be humble biblical interpreters who are letting our doctrine get reshaped by by the text itself, informing our theology, and then reshaping our theology all from the text. Yeah, that's really
0: good. How does one apply the biblical text to oneself, the church, and the world?
1: Well, that's such a huge question. (laughs) How how does a Christian apply the biblical text to ourselves? How do we apply it rightly? How do we appropriate it in God-honoring, Christ-exalting, biblically faithful ways to our churches, to to a world in desperate need. And so I, I don't claim at all to have the final word here, but I do try in my final chapter, which is near, nearly a hundred pages long to give clarity to that question because what's at stake here is. How do Christians approach their Old Testament, which requires a significant amount of extra bridge building because much of the Old Testament is focused on an old covenant that you and I, Dave, are not under anymore. The Mosaic law, for example, is not the direct binding authority in either of our lives. The law of Christ is. And yet Paul says we should be able to benefit from the Mosaic law in how it points to Jesus, in how it clarifies the nature of love and how it displays the character of God. So I I want to do this faithfully and, and I work hard in my book to try to give scriptural grounding to why I'm approaching scripture through a, a lens that has Jesus at the center. And if you think about a lens, light hits lenses in different ways. If it goes through the center of the lens, it gets more focused, but it doesn't bend. But if it hits the outside of a lens, the light actually gets bent. There's refraction that happens. And how the Old Testament applies and relates to Christians is much like that lens. Jesus is the lens. He is the fulfiller of all the Old Testament. But when we take that Old Testament and push it through the lens, Jesus fulfills the Old Testament in different ways. Sometimes, if we're talking about a law, that law will be maintained. So that it, in all practical senses, what Christians are living out on this side of the cross looks just like what it would have meant for a redeemed Old Covenant saint to be living it out on that side of the cross. Don't commit adultery. Don't commit adultery. It, it looks the same. The law of Christ has only provided a new pattern and a new power and new promises for fulfilling this law. But the law itself has not been trans- changed. it's It's been maintained. But other laws get transformed, take on a new look. I would suggest that the Sabbath is one of those laws that comes through the lens of Christ. The Sabbath was always the goal of Israelite society. It was the seventh day. They lived a six days of work, seventh day rest, in the pattern of God at creation. And after the fall, sovereign rest was warped. People were no longer at peace with God. He was still in charge, but now he was working again in order to see Sabbath peace, Sabbath rest realized again. He gave Israel a sign for their covenant. The sign was the Sabbath. It was a picture of what Israel was to be for the world. Through Israel, not only would the people of Israel, but all of the world enjoy Sabbath rest, finding their relationship with God, reconciled again at peace with God and at peace with one another. In the Old Testament period, it never happens. Israel continues to live for this goal that is never realized until Jesus, representing Israel, representing the nation and the world, comes and proclaims, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Don't labor or be weary. Come to me and I will give you rest. Mm. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. And on, on Resurrection Sunday, he brought Sabbath into realization so that all who are in Christ can enjoy Sabbath rest seven days a week. Jesus transforms the Sabbath law. Other laws, like bacon, actually in Jesus' fulfillment, get annulled. Unclean animals, I believe, were directly associated with the snake in the garden. They were associated with his predatory activity, with his dust-licking judgment, with the curse that he brought into this world of animosity and hostility, of friction. Jesus comes at the cross and crushes the head of the serpent, and therefore identifies that nothing is left unclean. I have freed it, and therefore when I eat a piece of bacon, pork sausage, BLT, or just load a good beef burger with bacon on top, I'm actually proclaiming the gospel victory of Jesus. Jesus' is fulfillment of that law actually annuls the law. And by not keeping that law anymore, we are declaring the work of Christ in all things. Very generally, I'll just overview this. How does one apply the biblical text to oneself, the church, and the world? I, I just say, number one, before we try to apply it to ourselves, we need to establish how the original audience was called upon to apply it? Who is this audience? Is it a person or is it many people? What life issues did this relate to? Was it dealing with family? Was it dealing with society? Was it dealing with religious worship? Application is going to be confined by those external life issues. Is the text calling for information, like know me in this way? Or is it calling for application, like live for me in this way? Is it dealing with present situations that are directly related to the old covenant or was it actually looking ahead to the age of the new covenant these are practical questions that we have to ask before we think about building a bridge from the old old testament into the new we need to understand what the original application was and then we can begin to build the bridge by determining the theological significance of the passage the lasting import of the passage for you for me for the Christian church. And I usually start by asking, what does the passage tell me about God and his ways? What does it tell me about his character? Unswerving, unchanging character. God's desires. God, what does God value? What is he can, what concerns him? What standards are guiding his practice? What are his purposes? And because God is unchanging, if I can understand what this passage tells me about God, that's going to be a lasting application for a believer. What it tells me about his ways and his purposes, I can I can grasp that, hold on to that. And then I would say, how does Christ's fulfillment of the Old Testament impact the application? Pausing long enough to ask that question and then wrestling deeply with the New Testament. And I've just got a list of questions here and I'll just run through them. Does the passage speak directly? to Old Covenant structures that get transformed in the New Testament. How has the progress of salvation history influenced how we hear? How does the progress of salvation history influence how we hear and may apply the text? How does the passage anticipate Jesus' life and work or the church age or the consummation? Does the passage express anything that is specifically bound in time or culture to the Old Testament period that can no longer relate to us this side of the cross? Things like bacon. Does the New Testament quote or allude to a particular text in a way that clarifies its lasting value for Christians? I want to know, does Jesus change anything when it comes to the significance of the Old Testament text, the lasting significance? I put Jesus right at the center. He's the lens through which I'm wanting to see Christians. I, I believe this is how the New Testament was appropriating its Old Testament. The apostles and the prophets upon which the church is built never looked at their Old Testaments as if Jesus didn't come. Everything was understood through the lens of Christ. And so I want to understand believing that all the Old Testament matters for me, but only appropriating it through Jesus.
0: Yeah, that's a really good answer. In the appendix, you write about the Kingdom Bible Reading Plan. Can you tell us a little bit about this plan, and how you want Christians to utilize uh, this Bible reading plan, please? Sure.
1: So the Kingdom Bible Reading Plan, I I called it Kingdom simply because that's such a a major theme in Scripture. Jesus came proclaiming the Kingdom of God. I want to make Kingdom saints. I want to be a Kingdom proclaimer like Jesus was. And that's going to be grounded in the Word. The biggest distinctive about this Bible Reading Plan is that it approaches the Old Testament like Jesus approached his Bible. Jesus didn't have an Old Testament that was structured like ours. Same exact books, but we're told in Luke 24 that Jesus' Old Testament had three parts, the Law, the Prophets, and the Psalms which scholars believe is directly related to the writings, the third major division of the Jewish scripture. Jesus had the law, the prophets, and the writings, and then we have the New Testament. Those divisions, the Old Testament in three parts, and then the New Testament shapes the four main divisions of this Bible reading plan. It covers 25 days out of the 30 or 31 in each month, recognizing that give, giving extra time for other elements in, in our devotion life that may rise. And then it just takes one reading from each of those major sections and walks through the Old Testament then in the order that I believe Jesus would have been approaching it. Law Prophets, Writings, New Testament. And it takes the reader through the whole Bible in a year. But if you want to slow down and not do four readings a day, you could do two readings a day or one reading a day and just walk through the text. It's just, I did not find any Bible reading plans that were in the order of Jesus's Bible. So, I set out to help my students have a Bible reading plan, if they chose to use it, that approached the Old Testament, I believe, the same way that Jesus would have been approaching his, in the same order.
0: Oh, that's awesome. Jason, there's a lot that we haven't covered in this. Uh, there's a lot in your excellent book you know, that we haven't covered during the course of this interview. And I'm just wondering maybe if you want to give a few takeaways that you, know, you want readers to take away as they read your excellent book. Well, thanks, Dave.
1: I, I'll lay out these. I'm wanting to see students be more equipped and motivated to study, practice, and teach God's Word. In Ezra 7.10, we read Ezra's resolve, for Ezra set his heart to study the Torah of Yahweh, to practice it, and to teach both statute and rule in Israel, to study, to practice, to teach in that order. And I'm hoping that this book is going to motivate Christians to enter into their Old Testaments in that order, study, practice, teach. Hmm. Isaiah said, this is the one to whom I will look. He who's humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. Hmm. That's God's word through Isaiah. I want to see people who increasingly, as they walk through my book and are pointed to the book, tremble at God's word that they might encounter him and enjoy his favor. Number three, I'm just wanting to nurture within Christians deeper love for Jesus from all of scripture. He said it was about him and I'm wanting to give tools to believers to help them learn how to faithfully and not inappropriately treasure Christ in the gospel from all of the Bible. Number four, I, I want believers to be equipped to discern how things like Old Testament laws, Old Testament promises relate to Christians this side of the cross. Can a Christian claim Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. That was given to a different people under a different covenant. Is that okay for us to claim? And I believe it is through Jesus. And in my book, I try to clarify why that is. So being equipped in how to discern how it is that Old Testament laws, Old Testament promises are for us. And then finally, just very practically, right along with treasuring Christ, just be. I I hope people who read my book will be more equipped equipped to meet Jesus and the gospel in the initial three-fourths of the Bible. That really summarizes it at the core. I want to see Christians who treasure Christ. That's my passion. I believe it is God's passion to see believers raised up who treasure his son. I believe it's the driving force of the Bible. So I'm trying to make readers who are like that. And that's what I want to see happen.
0: Well, Jason, um, I very much appreciate the time that you've given to me today and your excellent, thoughtful, uh, biblical and pastoral answers. I know that people will find this incredibly helpful as they think through what the old testament is and guys i encourage you to pick up jason's book it's it's really good um it'll help you or whatever stage you're at in your understanding of the reading of the old testament and it'll help you to interpret the text um accurately so jason i very much appreciate uh, all that you do are doing for the kingdom and may god richly bless your ministry brother Thank you, Dave. Delight to be with you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Equipping You in Grace. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a rating on iTunes and share it across your social media outlets. I want to thank you once again for listening to this episode. Until next time, may the Lord richly bless you and keep you.